0: Hi. So good to have you back. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Prudery Podcast. We are up and flying with this podcast. As you can see, it's shot to the top of every chart. Every single chart. Sorry. The lights turn off automatically in here sometimes. No, we're excited you're back with us. And this is going to be another conversation. This is Episode 2. It's going to be another conversation between Elizabeth and a good friend of ours in the Cook Islands. She was instrumental in writing a piece of legislation with this friend of ours. His name is Ruben Tyler. He's been an attorney in the Cook Islands for quite some time. And him and Elizabeth wrote and helped draft a piece of Cook Islands legislation. It was actually made by their government. It was passed by their government in 2021. It was called the International Relationship Property Act. And the purpose of that was they were dealing with a lot of issues with a rather unpleasant subject, divorce, apologies, we have to talk about divorce, but something we have to deal with sometimes, um, where divorce courts were interfering with trust structures. And in the opinion of Elizabeth and Rubin, that was sort of unfair because a trust structure should be separate as an entity from what's going on with a marriage settlement. So they are discussing the various issues associated with that, and... If this doesn't apply to you, if you're not worried about divorce or you're not thinking about, you know, foreign trust, if none of it's important to you, that's totally fine. Just skip right to the next one. You're not going to offend me. Um, and once again, if you want to get in contact with us, just email me. My email is kreddington at pridedairypodcast.com. Or if you're listening to this on the audio version, you can Google our firm, Elizabeth Morgan and Associates, and um, you should have a contact uh, email there. And yeah, I'm going to kick it over to Elizabeth. She's going to talk about this piece of legislation, and we will see you in the next one. Thank you.
1: Good. All right. Well. Um, good afternoon, and uh, or morning, wherever it is that you're joining us from. Um, uh, my guest today is Reuben Tyler. Uh, Reuben is sitting in the Cook Islands, uh, which uh, is, you know, in the Pacific. Clearly. And you can tell that I am not, I'm in my wool blazer and Reuben is in his nice tropical garb, which uh, is completely appropriate for an island in the Pacific. So welcome Reuben, we are so glad to have you. Reuben Tyler Tyler, uh, hails originally from New Zealand. He uh, was born in Dunedin, New Zealand. He did his schooling as a child in both the Cook Islands and uh, and in New Zealand. And perhaps I stop right now. There are going to be some listeners who don't know where the Cook Islands are. So, Reuben, why don't you give a quick ex- geographic explanation of where exactly you are in the South Pacific?
2: Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. Um, I mean, we're, we're 21 degrees south of directly below Hawaii. Hawaii is 21 degrees north.
1: And we're physically part of the Tahitian group of islands. Perfect. And and just so our listeners know, it it seems like a remote spot, but you can take a direct flight from Los Angeles really easily. It's about an eight or nine hour flight, and um, so it's uh, it's actually much easier to get there than than you would think. So he's um, spent time in his past at both. New Zealand and the Cook Islands and continues to do so. That's one of those unique things about the Cook Islands is its relationship with New Zealand. And I'll let uh, Reuben talk more about that w- w- once we get started. Ruben uh, has degrees from, two degrees, from Auckland University, um, both his bachelor's degree and his law degree. He's admitted as a barrister and solicitor of the New Zealand High Court. And he has been practicing law as a barrister in the Cook Islands as well. So a barrister, for some of you who are not familiar with a common law or UK-based system, is somebody who tries cases as opposed to a solicitor who drafts documents. So there's a little bit of difference there. Reuben has founded a number of trust companies beginning in 1983, Southpac, Cook Islands Trust, um, New Zealand Trust and Investment Corporation in New Zealand, and most recently, um, trusts trustees and fiduciaries in the Cook Islands in 2015. So Ruben is a uh, really creative, brilliant, amazing person. I was lucky enough to meet him um, probably about mm, 23, 24 years ago um, in a snowstorm in New York City which uh, was interesting given his uh, you know coming from the Cook Islands and we have had just a fabulous friendship and relationship since then he's one of the most creative and you know academic and intellectual people I know and also one of the most real and practical so um, welcome Reben to our podcast we're so glad you're here
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction. It's
1: very kind. Well, thank you. Um, I think to lay a foundation for a discussion, which I would like to be broader than our primary focus, which is some new legislation that Ruben and I worked on together, and we're very happy about that legislation. I'd like to briefly talk to our audience about... uh, Jurisdictional differences, Ruben, in approaches to property ownership, rights of creditors, um, et cetera. Just to, to lay a bit of groundwork, if that's okay. So I'll I'll start with my summary, and then feel free to jump in at any at any juncture. Okay. So for our listeners, there are different types of legal systems. Um, primarily civil law versus common law. Common law is an English-based system, has much more of a, a, a feeling of a Judeo-Christian background based on concepts of duty, fiduciary, nature, um, types of, uh, of systems, and it's primarily driven by precedent. So while there are statutes, then the courts interpret those statutes, and those interpretations go into case law, and that becomes precedent. So in the common law situation, the law is changing; it's growing, it's changing. In civil law countries, and think about, you know, countries like, you know, Switzerland, Germany, Mexico, um, those systems are based almost exclusively on statutes. There, they do have case law, but um, it's much more driven by the uh, the actual statutes themselves. So both systems have legislation and statutes and case law, but historically common law has developed much more out of a precedential system than the civil law. There, uh, Because of the fact that England was colonizing all over the world, the English common law system is very widespread. So it's not just sitting in England and it didn't just come to the United States, it also traveled across the ocean and exists in the Caribbean countries, the South Pacific countries, Australia, New Zealand, etc. So when we're talking about these legal systems, it's helpful to remember that we have common law versus civil law systems. Now, the other thing to um, keep in mind is that jurisdictions have the ability to, you know, through their legislative bodies, write laws um, for the benefit of the folks in their jurisdictions. But in some situations, think Delaware, um, in the United States, when you have a jurisdiction that doesn't have a lot of revenue potential, uh, you know, because of their size or their location, et cetera, Sometimes they'll draft legislation to encourage businesses to move there, um, so they'll draft statutes that are more beneficial than perhaps their neighbors' statutes, all in the interest of you know free market, um, freedom of uh, movement of goods and services, et cetera. So, the Cook Islands is a uh, one is a chain of islands. Um, I will let. Uh, Reuben pop in and talk to you about uh, Rarotonga, which is, uh, you know, one of the larger islands. Um, and, uh, but the Cook Islands has developed uh, into a trust center. Um, and uh, Reuben was very instrumental in doing that in the 80s. Um, because it, you know, when you are living in an island chain, uh, you have some ability to generate uh, revenue, but there's, you know, other than tourism, sometimes you get a little limited in the way that you can generate revenue. So uh, Reuben, if you wouldn't mind, just give our audience a brief synopsis mm-hmm. of how that came about um, in in the 80s, the Cook Islands asset protection legislation, because I think it's a perfect foundation for the real property uh, trust concept and statute that we're going to talk about. Not real property, sorry. Relationship property trust statute. All right. Well, I think
2: the, the main the main thing to understand is that a lot of your law is is perhaps at least decades and maybe even centuries ahead of us, and Elizabeth and I sometimes say behind. <laughs> but you you you're dealing with legal concepts that haven't developed here yet and so we have a vacuum in our law in many areas and one of the areas was the law of bankruptcy and, that, and I'll give you that as an example so we we don't have bankruptcy law here yet um, we're still back in the 18 probably the 1860s for bankruptcy law and so our law, anyway, is traditional English law. Maybe a hundred, maybe a hundred fifty years behind, and so for the most part, we're talking about looking back and saying, "Well, hundred years ago, what did English law say about these things?" So the step into protecting trust assets was easy for us um, because that's what our law—that's where our law was anyway. But the other aspect is the 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 Cook Islands is a small, it's a micro state, but we do have a fully-fledged democracy, um, and our parliament meets. I mean, I'm going to be frank. Our parliament meets about 60 days a year, and they are interested if we are able to come up with legislation that addresses problems elsewhere, while not having any negative impact on the domestic scene. And so that's where asset protection really, that's where the idea began. Our trusts, our trust law said that if you set a trust up, then the assets in that trust are protected against creditors. Your trust law has all sorts of ifs and buts about it. So we, we codified, basically codified our, our common law position and made it attractive then for foreigners to bring their trusts into the bookmarks because of the different law and that extra protection. And I think the word is probably that we provide a degree of certainty that we don't have in your own domestic jurisdiction. So I think that probably answers your question, well.
1: It does. So, Ruben, building on that concept um, and the idea of asset protection, uh, I remember when I was a very, very young lawyer. I remember learning in law school um, that. Well, let me let me just back up again. So, the common law rule of trusts says that if I make a transfer to a trust, and by the way, a trust is a relationship, it's not an entity, right? So if I, if I create a trust, it's a relationship among a trustee, a person who's charged to be trustworthy with regard to those assets, um, a settlor, the person who transfers the assets, and the beneficiary, right? Um, and all three of those people play a role in that relationship. Um, and that's a common law concept that you don't see in the civil law uh, you know, world. Um, you have things, and that will be a topic for future podcast foundations, other types of structures that do the same thing. But a trust is a relationship. So when you are thinking about trusts, um, where that trust lives isn't necessarily um, driven by Uh, what the governing law is, it really is based on where the trustee is located, um, because that's where the jurisdiction will sit, where the trust is being administered. So that's kind of, uh, first and foremost, a really important point as we start to talk about the development of the asset protection trust world in the Cook Islands, and then talk about our relationship property trusts. So the thing that's interesting for American audiences, if, if you all are listening, is that in the common law, I could make a transfer to a trustee for the benefit of a beneficiary, and I could be that beneficiary as long as I had not made a transfer that was fraudulent in, in, with regard to creditors, um, which is outside the scope of this particular time we're sitting together. But, um, but that's important. Because in the United States, before the beginning of the industrial era, that was our rule as well. I could create a trust for the benefit of a beneficiary, and the beneficiary could be me as long as I hadn't made a fraudulent transfer. There was a public policy concern in America because of the way that our country grew up out of some very restrictive hierarchies that said that our public policy would not support any kind of restraints on alienation, and what does that mean? Anything that said that an individual couldn't pledge or assign their property. So before the industrial era in the United States, before the 20th century, um, individuals created trusts and allowed their beneficiaries, their children, they had to, to alienate the property, which means they could have personal debt, and use the assets in the trust to secure that debt, which in an agrarian economy wasn't a problem, but in the industrial era became a big issue um, because these kids were pledging their assets in exchange for debt um, in, in an environment where it was the beginning of the industrialized era, uh, you know, age. And lo and behold, these parents were getting calls from banks talking about creditors taking assets out of the trust. so. In the United States, uh, that began a process of changing legislation. Those parents um, felt very strongly that those children were spendthrifts and shouldn't be allowed to assign those assets uh, to secure debt, which violated public policy. So so began about a 40- or 50-year march toward passing what we refer to as spendthrift trusts statutes. And what those statute say is, okay, we can see that it is in the public interest to allow restraints of alienation, which generally are against public policy, in trusts where there is a spendthrift beneficiary. The caveat is that if I, the set lure, am also the beneficiary, then the trust does not get that spendthrift protection. In other words, I have to have the ability to pledge or assign the assets um, because it would be against public policy to allow us the settlor to protect our assets from the claims of our creditors, which is a very unique American um, construct. So that's the next concept that's important to understand because I remember the very first time I was approached as a young trust lawyer at Jenkins and Gilchrist in Dallas with this idea that we should be able to do foreign trusts. And those trusts would protect the assets from the claims of the settlers' creditors i It was almost like a mind numbing or blowing experience. I said that's just impossible because you know I had been raised in a certain pond on a certain lily pad, and I didn't even realize there were other lily pads and in fact, there are lots of other lily pads and it's uh, and actually the you know the u s system is a hybrid off of the more pure common law system of trust so that was the first light bulb that went off in my in my head oh my lands we could really um, go to a common law jurisdiction and have some superior asset protection um, and so so fast forward to the cook islands and you all drafted uh, you know we've we've had legislation in various jurisdictions uh, that do you know go it provide a framework for what some people call self-settled asset protection trusts. I don't really like that because the reality is they're old common law uh, trusts. They they follow the common law principle that as long as there's been no fraudulent transfer, um, those assets can be protected from the claims of creditors. But Cook Islands, you all went further and provided a very clear framework for how creditors could reach those assets. And to be very frank, it was a very limited opportunity for creditors to reach those assets. So fast forward to the future, uh, Ruben and I share some, you know, some views about family and the importance of uh, independent thinking and the ability to make our own decisions about things like marital property and protecting that property for the family and not outside creditors. And um, we had an opportunity to talk about those ideas. I I do get to go to the Cook Islands um, and except for COVID, unfortunately, I haven't been there in a while, but um, in those those times where we were able to kind of talk about that and think about the very family oriented nature of the Cook Islands, we came up with, the, with this idea, and I can't remember, Reuben. I think it was much more your idea than mine, but the concept is that uh, in the United States where, and, and, and not just the United States, kind of in the Western world, um, the concept of family and marriage is, is eroding, uh, which means more and more divorces. I mean, the statistics right now look like it's in excess of sixty percent of first-time marriages end in divorce, and what that can lead to is, uh, you know, is an erosion of the family's resources, and you know, generally can be a societal problem. And so we were talking about how courts were addressing that in the United States. You know, could Parties could spouses contract. Uh, we, we have statutes to allow us to do that. Different states have different levels of ability to do that. And so we, we talked about, you know, maybe what we should do is create a trust that would protect those assets and allow spouses, while they still liked each other, <laughs> to craft an agreement about how that would happen after divorce and that would have the asset protection construct of the Cook Islands to stand up against, you know, what I would term rogue courts who are undoing, you know, premarital and marital property agreements. Is that, is that kind of a fair assessment of how we got to this statute? Yeah, that's,
2: that's where we really began.
1: So from that point, uh, we agreed to put our heads together and uh, to draft a statute. And it, it was really so much fun to do, an American lawyer um, and New Zealand lawyers, because um, not only was it Ruben and me and um, you know a couple of the lawyers in my office, but um, also we involved New Zealand counsel And I started kind of with the Uniform Marital Property Act in the U.S. So our idea, and then we translated that also into the New Zealand concept of these types of contracts. And the idea being that we wanted it to be um, negotiated and um, entered into by, in the same way that a marital property agreement would be in our various countries. So... Um, both parties are represented by counsel, they know uh, what it is that they're doing, they consent to the, the terms and provisions, the attorneys sign off, just like, you know, with the same formalities that would be used if it was a marital property agreement. And, you know, the idea being that this shouldn't be something that parties enter into lightly um, but that once they've entered into it, it's binding. Um, so, which again, you know, I feel really good about that process because, you know, we, we don't want, while we want to protect what the parties agree, we don't want any, por- any party drug into an agreement that they don't really understand. So um, we put those safeguards in place, Reuben writes. So, um, and I think both you and I felt strongly about doing that um, to protect the parties, but also to give the court uh, a reason to respect this as a marital property contract or a relationship property contract. Because uh, the statute, and Reuben, I'll let you kind of speak to the substance of the statute. The statute doesn't just protect property owned by traditionally married individuals, it also allows people who are in a relationship, um, no matter the, the the form of it, to utilize this trust structure to, to make decisions about how the property will be managed if the relationship breaks up. So, so Reuben, yeah, why don't you give your... Um, Kind of your take on that? I, you know, that's my very brief summary. And maybe speak to the specific provisions of the statute, and um, and the way from a Cook Islands trust company and uh, practitioner standpoint, the trust would be onboarded, uh, administered, and then uh, you know administered during the relationship and after the relationship.
2: Okay. Well, just let me let me just talk quickly about the the concept of the legislation, and it, because it is a little bit novel, and I'm not even sure that this was our law a hundred years ago. But but both in the United States and in English law jurisdictions, this principle called clean break principle has developed, where courts <coughs> courts have decided, and often it's given effect in statute. Form uh, that the best thing for parties when they uh, separate or divorce is that their assets be split up and divided up between them, and that right. they have nothing further to do with each other ever after. So, so that's um, I mean that's appealing to some. It's it's not really what you think about when you do get married, um, but uh, it's become the norm. Unfortunately, what happens in that case when there is that clean break, often there's an enormous destruction of the wealth of the family. Right. Um, I've been given the figures of that. For example, the the main wealth producer in the family is probably going to lose control over something like 65% of the family assets. Right. And uh, that person's going to be ending up Maybe 35% of the assets under their control or management. And the same applies to if there's a family office managing family wealth, they're going to end up with maybe 35, 40% of the assets. So that there's a cost to this policy. And you can see that cost demonstrated best when you come to family businesses where there is a divorce and that family business is going to have to be. Divided effectively between the two parties to the relationship, that may end up often in the collapse of the business because it may not be able to finance that, or it may end up with a third-party investor coming in. But it is there's no doubt that it ha- has a traumatic impact on the value of the business. So those were the those were the factors that we were looking at. And so how do we how do we address that? And the answer was quite simple, really. It's it, just that you rebut the clean and break principle. And that's the essence of the Act. The Act in Section 16 starts off and says that if you have put assets into a relationship property trust, then those assets shall remain intact and under common management in the event that the parties separate. So it's reversing uh, several decades of law of clean break principle, and that's really that's the key essence. Um, there's there's a lot of other provisions in the act that are complementary to that, uh, including there are firewall provisions to protect the trust against foreign judgments that might. Appear from overseas. Um, So we don't want the Cook Islands courts giving automatic recognition, for example, to a US judgment that says no, these assets have to be distributed, must be divided and distributed. So the Cook Islands Act rejects that principle. Um, In terms of the background to the legislation, It's taken quite a long long time to put the legislation together. Um, We've had numerous lawyers from different jurisdictions having input into it. Uh, Elizabeth and I did the foundation work together. Um, We've had to involve New Zealand Parliamentary Council as well. Um, So it's it's been quite a job. It's been interesting, but it's also been quite hard work putting this legislation together. Our initial reaction from the market is very positive. Um, And the more we learn about what we've done, uh, the more confident we are that this legislation will withstand um, any litigation in the same way that the asset protection legislation we put together some 30 odd years ago has been successful. So we're pretty confident that this legislation is going to provide a very useful tool for estate planners who are concerned about the potential damage that a divorce might do to a family both.
1: right? I th- I think ab- absolutely, and um, n- nothing against our friends in the divorce bar, um, but it's uh, a trend that's been emerging is the uh, you know that clean break idea. Uh, is clearly something that's been emerging, but also the concept that parties who contract prior to marriage or even after marriage, the courts want to come on top of that agreement, and uh, and you know allege that the agreement is is not valid. So that's that's troubling because you know an agreement if it's made while you still like each other, with all of the formalities and protections involved, both having counsel, sitting down at a table together, um, you know, truly that should be uh, upheld because once a divorce happens, of course, somebody's really upset. And, you know, and at at that point, um, you know, the most sympathetic of the uh, individuals or the one who has the most money could win, and so what I love about this structure is it preserves the intention of the parties at a time when they their right mind. You know, they had the right mind, and to be honest, Reuben, there aren't lawyers who will make money out of creating a problem, right? So um, that's also, in some respects, my incentive. Um, I you, you know you and I both really believe people should be able to freely contract. Um, and as long as they've been advised properly, and there was no deception, then the contract should stand. And so that's that. Really, to me, is one of the reasons I was so passionate about this project, because it's uh, it honors, you know, an, an individual's ability to make decisions, and doesn't leave you know people vulnerable. To a court system that may or may not be acting wholly in their interests. So,
2: yeah, that's if I could just make a comment there too, and that is that we talked about prenups and postnups, and of course the difference there is that you're you're agreeing on the shares, uh, but you're actually agreeing to divide and distribute. Right. Whereas this this concept is that you don't. You can agree on the shares, but you don't divide and distribute. But more important, you'll see that your courts do have the right and, and often do review uh, prenups and postnups. And when they carry out that review, they carry out the review as to fairness as at the date that they're doing the review. They don't look back to the date that it was created they don't restrict themselves to the date it's created. Right. We discussed discussed the policy behind that and we decided in the legislation that we would restrict the courts to the date that the agreement was entered into and not allow the court to do any review in relation to the current, at the time the separation occurred. So it's one of the numerous small... Uh, little uh, policy issues that we've
1: dealt with in the statute. Right. And when Ruben speaks about this shares idea, um, just to go deeper into the statute and the way that it actually would work, um, the parties can decide after a divorce how much income they receive from something that we have termed shares. So. Uh, there there is the ability for the parties to contract and envision divorce in other words it doesn't have to all just stay in some kind of joint pot where they have to you know talk to each other because the reality is they may not want to talk to each other so they can contract and agree to have separate shares so that they can kind of go on their way without interacting but the value of the business or the resource, whatever it is that they see as being important to, to keep intact stays in that solution um, and and also gives them the ability to live independently of each other, which is, you know, incredibly important, I think. Now, you know, from a U.S. standpoint, people might think, well, you know, hmm, how, how is that going to work? I have property sitting in the United States. Um, is a court really going to honor, you know, because you can bind a trust by filing suit where the trust property is located. Um, Will the, you know, how is that really going to work? Um, How does turnover work? You know, let's say that the asset is a family business, Ruben, and it's a C-Corp and their shares, um, and those, that company's actually in the United States. Could you speak to how that would work, because the divorce court's going to come in, the judge is going to say, yeah, right, okay, those shares, that family business is located in Baltimore. And um, so I'm going to, you know, bind this trust by gaining control of this family business located in Baltimore. Can you kind of walk us through what that would look like in terms of um the you know interaction between a court in baltimore and a court in Rarotonga.
2: yeah it's it's a it's a complex uh, issue we're talking about choice of law initially we're talking about choice of law by the parties and both in us law and in most other jurisdictions the law does recognize the rights of the parties to choose the law that will apply that's that that policy is sometimes in statute sometimes it's in judicial doctrine but it is always subject to a a test or several tests that the court looks at to decide whether the law that they're asked to apply is reasonable and is fair and so for that reason That's why the legislation has provisions in it such as requiring the parties to have uh, independent legal representation. It requires the parties to make full disclosure of assets, income and liabilities at the time that the document is entered into. So there's a whole lot of preliminary requirements that try to tick all the boxes in this fair and reasonable foreign law concept. But at the end of the day, um, I, I've, I've got no doubt in my mind that there will be some cases because of the facts or because of the terms of the trust document itself where the courts will say, no, well, we're not going to apply the law, but I believe that the majority of cases they are going to say that this law, this foreign law is different to US law. But it is fair. It is reasonable. It is socially positive. It restores family values, um, and in fact, it's in my opinion, it's probably better than uh, what uh, we have in the U.S. or, for example, New Zealand or Australia, because of these factors. Now, there there are there is some. So if I just go back to the asset protection concept and the asset protection world, when we were setting up these trusts to keep creditors away, we were playing hardball. We were basically constructing a hard brick mortar wall in front of them and saying, give it your best shot because you're really going to waste your time. The family protection uh, trust is, is slightly different because it does allow a foreign court to look into these trusts. And the reason that we've done that is because we want to be able to persuade the foreign court that these uh, that this law is reasonable and that the parties are protected against abuse. Um, so I think that's, that's where we see the bulk of the market. There is also the other part of the market where the assets may be placed outside of the U.S. And in those situations, a couple can say, well, we don't care what the foreign court says that our assets are out of its jurisdiction. So it becomes more similar to an asset protection trust. So that's the, that's the way we've looked at different um, jurisdictions and for example, New Zealand legislation, which is close to our, the one we look to it, New Zealand legislation specifically says that in family property disputes, uh, the court must have regard to the choice of the law of the parties, uh, provided it's fair and reasonable.
1: Right. So I think that addresses the... Right, right. From a, an American standpoint, I can tell you that if I were advising an American client, um, I would probably say um, we would want to think about pulling those assets out of, you know, the jurisdiction of a U.S. court. So um, I, I think the fact that you all, from a Cook Island standpoint, will honor the choice of governing law of the parties is great, but it's just something that, you know, in the, in the United States, we may have a bit of a tug of war just because the assets are in the U.S. Now, for assets that aren't in the United States, that's a completely different you know, situation. Um, but I do think that's something that, as the law develops, um, we'll need to look at. Now, if, if, it, Reuben, if you and I think about how the law is developed in the domestic asset protection environment, Um, We've had courts saying that they will honor a choice of law um, if there's enough connection to that jurisdiction. So a lot of the cases we've gotten um, about, you know, Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, Asset Protection Trust, Alaska, um, the challenge has been that the, you know, when they use an administrative trustee only, but all the decisions are made by the settlor or they're, they're made in a different jurisdiction. Um, the courts are kind of begging us, please, you know, if you want that law to apply, you really need, because remember, it's a relationship. It's not a corp. You need to have uh, enough connections with that jurisdiction. So with regard to the Relationship Property Trust, for instance, this statute doesn't envision that kind of more rudimentary administrative trustee um, construct that we have in the domestic asset protection trust statutes in the U.S. So, and I think that's incredibly valuable. If I think about how a U.S. court is going to interpret that, if a Cook Islands trustee is making all the decisions, acting like a fiduciary, being a real trustee, and there's no control um, in the hands of, you know, a settlor or someone, you know, outside of the Cook Islands, then we have a much better argument, the Cook Islands law, that that choice of law should be respected by the courts. And, you know, we don't really know how that's going to play out um, in the long term. But, um, you know, the good news about you and I reaching these certain ages in our career is at least we've seen Uh, You know, uh, we've seen a lot uh, develop over our careers. So I, you know, my best advice to folks about, well, do domestic asset protection trusts work? And, you know, for our audience, what uh, the jurisdictions that have, quote, what I am referring to as domestic asset protection trusts, they've in essence gone back to the pre-industrial age, pre-20th century English common law idea of a trust. They, you know, basically say that as long as there's no fraudulent transfer, a settler can settle a trust and be a beneficiary, and those assets will be protected from the claims of creditors. Um, So what the courts have been telling us is, um, and well, and let me just back up. You know, if you are, I sit in Texas, uh, well, Texas and Florida, but um, I'm in Texas right now, and in Texas, we have the old-fashioned spendthrift trust legislation. So if I'm a settlor and I create a trust um, and I attempt to use it to protect against the claims of my creditors, a court's not going to honor that necessarily, I mean, in Texas, because that's not the way our statute works. Um, in Delaware, the court would honor it. If I was sitting in Delaware, the court would say, yeah, right, that that makes sense. Um and what what the courts are saying based on the case law that's been that's starting to develop is we will honor a choice of law as long as there are enough connections to that jurisdiction to warrant it so just you know why it's so important to have a corporate trustee in the Cook Islands and the difference between uh, Cook Island's asset protection legislation, and the relationship property trust legislation, and the domestic asset protection legislation in the United States. Just a, a, a difference there. So uh, Reuben, do you have any other, I'm going to kind of wind up with some of my comments about the links that we're going to have in the notes to um, to this presentation but do you have any other additional words of wisdom for us or things that yeah you know, just you can just add? in terms of uh,
2: just on the choice of law issue um, one, one of the things that we are seeing in, in cases is is um, and you referred to it before um, you know that, that this doesn't apply, the relationship property trust doesn't just apply to married couples, it applies to people in a relationship. So it might be same-sex couples, it might be, um, yeah, there's a whole just ordinary de facto relationships. So though people in, that relation, in those relationships can also establish a relationship property trust. And the other thing is that wealthy families now tend more and more to become more international. And so I agree that you're going to have a problem with a Texas couple who have lived all their lives in Texas, married in Texas, born in Texas, and own property in Texas. Um, but but the reality is that many, many, many families now, one or the other comes from some other country, have a foreign domicile, they have assets, Perhaps in three or four different countries, right? Yeah. Um, and they have a potential for their matrimonial property to be claimed to be bought in three or four different countries. So I think there's a whole group of people out there that start to make that choice of law issue more more fuzzy. And in those situations, I'm Reasonably confident that the courts are going to find it attractive if there's a neutral jurisdiction, as long as that, as long as the law of that mutual jurisdiction is fair and reasonable, and as long as the parties are protected against uh, abuse in the future. So I think that um, that's probably a useful point. And the other one is that we do we do have families with legacy properties, assets that. The founders don't want sold. Uh, And it might, you know, an example in the US might be a farming family that every time they make money they buy the neighbor's farm. (laughs) They never spend anything outside that farm and the neighbor's farm. And they don't want that farm to be sold because of their son's divorce. Right. Um, So I think it's got applications there as well. so it's got applications. All these applications are, in my view, socially positive. Um, there's nothing socially negative about this legislation.
1: Right. No, I, I agree. And so I like the way we're ending this. We kind of are ending where we started, that our motivation um, really had to do with creating a way for individuals to protect uh, property in a way that was very socially positive, positive for relationships, positive for families, protected children, um, you know, from what you and I perceive to be um, courts and, you know, a, a, a professional community that uh, is, you know, kind of pillaging family stores uh, and it's not benefiting the families. So I think um, as time goes on, you and I both hope, I'm speaking for you, I know, but um, we share this value that um, that's generally a bad thing, that, you know, relationships and children and um, and resources should have a venue for protection um, in, instead of only a venue for dissipation, which is uh, is what we're seeing in you know not only in the United States but in New Zealand and Australia as well. so
2: all right, well, let's thank you for bringing me into this um, conversation, Elizabeth. Um, I'll let you get back to uh, Texas winter.
1: Fantastic. well, um, for our audience, thank you so much, Reuben. I so appreciate it. I hope I get to see you soon. Um, let's cross our fingers that there aren't any other kind of humanitarian or <laughs> health crises that keep me from traveling or or you from traveling. And uh, I just want to thank our audience for uh, participating with us. I know it's um, this. This is a topic that is a little academic and. Uh, but if you'd like some additional resources, uh, below uh, this video, you'll see links to Rubens, uh, to te- uh, trustees and fiduciaries to their website. We're, uh, we've also linked uh, the statute if you'd like to actually access it. We've linked our law firm in case you want to know more about us. And uh, if you want to leave comments, please do, and um, we'll try to get you know back to you if we can. So. Thanks so much. Uh, Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Ruben. Thank you.